Yo, this is It's Murr, and you're listening to Tin Pod Radio. You can find me at It's Murr on Instagram and Patreon and Ko-fi. thinking behind the characters, refining characters, design and such. Was that something you had learned in school and then you went into cosplay from the beginning or is it a process that you learned along the way? Um, well, I worked in a theatre for two years, eight months years, um, working in the wardrobe department because there was a, a point when I was thinking about going into costume design and actually I learned how to do all of that there from the uh, costume, uh, the wardrobe business. Mistress I was working with and the costume designers I ended up working with. I ended up learning a lot about that. 
and a lot of the things that I found I actually learned from directors in that they'd be like, well, I've asked, you know, I've asked for this, this is my vision, and this is exactly what I want because of these reasons that this character behaves in this way, so I want it to look like this. And it makes you think about it, it's like, oh, so if you're reading a script and a character behaving in a certain way or doing a certain thing or they, uh, you know, they have a certain job or whatever, you have to design the costume around that rather than thinking, oh, well, I want this character to wear this, it doesn't matter what any of that, you know, that stuff is. So all of that research that you put into it is really important because character informs costume just as much as costume informs character. So if you like, if you look at someone like um, uh, General Hux, is actually he's on my mind at the moment for making that costume. But he's a perfect example in that you can see in his costume that he has these exaggerated shoulder pads in it that makes him look bigger and wider than he is. The coat makes him look a lot bigger than he is. He's really slim, and yet his costume is made to exaggerate that, like makes him not look like this little person. He's meant to look bigger, and you can tell through that that he's quite he has some issues in confidence and he's trying to project himself as being more confident and more powerful than he is. That's and that's really interesting. So I think that's where I, I come to it from. I like I want to let, I want to present the character's personality through a costume just as much as like just thinking something looks cool. Well, I know like as a writer myself when I seen your Tumblr when you laid it out with like the design and, and looking at the character and research and such that helped me actually with the approach to looking at doing characters better. Does that influence you with your writing of characters too? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't do that much writing with visuals because I write a lot of podcasts, I write a lot for audio dramas um, or just for prose. But for me, when you're writing a character, you need to be able to write their, their voice and their personality so that somebody can instantly visualize them in their head. So... If you, say, have a character who's an explorer or an adventurer, you need to be able to have those moments with that character where you can give them a key feature, like a hat, or um, or even just something where you're like, oh, you know that their trousers have lots of pockets in them, or they've got a belt with loads of stuff on it, because that character talks about those things. But even from a non-physical aspect, if you know that the character behaves in a certain way, like they love climbing, or they're likely to run headfirst into danger or something like that, that's going to tell you what they look like a bit because somebody who's shy is probably more likely to be wearing, like, more layers or, like, hiding behind, you know, maybe putting barriers up with their clothing, whereas somebody who's more, like, I don't necessarily mean this, but someone who's more outgoing is more likely to be wearing something that um, sort of portrays that, so they're more likely to be wearing something slightly more outlandish, maybe something slightly more quirky because they're like, oh, I'm, I'm comfortable and happy in who I am, so I'm going to dress slightly more kind of outrageously. That's not always true, but it's, you know, you can see these little, you know, that's a very big generalisation, but you can see these little things in characters in that, uh, actually the most, uh, I can think of an example of this, the most recent Dirk Gently series, like, Dirk is so brilliantly flamboyant and outgoing, but at the point when he's losing his confidence, he dresses like much more normally, much more plainly, and then when he gets his confidence back, he suddenly starts dressing in this really quirky way again, and you can tell that with characters, and I think that's really interesting. That yeah, I think it is too, and yeah. uh, when it comes to like your audio uh, writing with like Raygun and Starburst, do you have in your head how everybody is dressed? 
Not at all. The only thing I know about Ray Gonzalez is that Ray always wears like a sort of baseball style jacket. Um, that says Ray Gonzalez on it, and it's a piece of merchandise that Starburst has had made for him, and he hates, but he wears it anyway. Uh, that's the only thing I know. And obviously, Starburst a lot of the time wears the suit, but I'm not actually sure. Again, I don't really know what that looks like. So sometimes I think it's more like an Iron Man suit kind of idea, and sometimes I think it's more like a sort of retro space suit. And sometimes I'm like, it's like an astronaut suit. I don't know. It's, it's one of the things that, oddly, I know their voices so well, but I don't know what they look like. And I think that's on purpose in that if I decided what they looked like, that would come across in the writing. And that would mean that the listeners wouldn't be able to make up their own minds as much, which is what I really like about radio, is that people can look at whatever, whatever that person, that listener, wants it to look like. Like, every... We've had, like, fan art and stuff, and every single time, people draw them differently, apart from Ray. Ray is often quite similar, which is weird, and quite similar <laughs> to what I think it looks like. But Starburst is different every single time. And I think that's great. It's really interesting. Well, you um, speak of, like, the the whole radio thing. It's kind of like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where there was a lot of stuff he said was never meant to be shown on screen. Yeah, no, definitely. I think, especially when you have something like radio, where you can present this idea of uh, these characters who definitely look like whatever somebody wants to look like. Because even in prose, you have to describe what people look like, because otherwise it reads really weird. You know, you have to put some descriptions, descriptions in. But when all you have is dialogue, all you have is people talking to each other, and sound effects, it's very unlikely for someone to go, oh, hey, I really like this thing you're wearing. I love that it's the colour blue, or whatever. You know, that's really weird. You don't say that to You might say, oh, I like the shirt, but you don't describe the shirt, you know. <laughs> or you might say, oh, I love your new haircut, but you don't describe the haircut. It's, it's really unnatural. So I really like that, that you can use that as a way of going, we're not going to describe what these people look like because it would be, there's no point, it would be weird, so let's just leave her. And that's, that, I like that, it's nice. Cool. Like, one of my favorite cosplays I've seen you do is your Riddler. I just love that Riddler, I think it's really cool. One of the best ones I've actually seen. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah. And like, uh, your BB-8 one you did too, is like, there was a a lot of like understanding that character to get into it. Is there anything that you've tried to cosplay that just did not work at all? Um, Pearl from Steven Universe. I tried to cosplay. I did a slight redesign of my own because I wanted to see what I could try make it look like in real life, and it did not work. She did not suit me like at all as character. She's far too graceful and elegant and feminine. It did not work. Um, <laughs> It was a fun day because I was cosplaying with my friends who were being Amethyst and uh, Stephen. But, you know, so it wasn't like I had a terrible time, but it did not work. Actually, like, my worst experience of the cosplay was when I did a Sith Acolyte for a Star Wars celebration. And my friends were doing a big group of Sith together. Uh, and they were like, do you want to do it with us? And I was like, well, I don't really cosplay Jedi or Sith characters because I don't really like them. But, sure, cool, I'll, I'll do it because, you know, it's Star Wars and you're doing it and it'll be fun. And it was my friend's birthday and I was like, yeah, that's what you want to do, that's what, that's what we'll do. Um, and I designed this whole costume and it was a bit of a rush to get it finished because I'd be making BB-8 at the same time and that had ended up taking over a lot of my time because it's so detailed. 
I made I hand made all the patches for these new so there was a lot of work involved. Um but I got this other costume finished but I wasn't happy with it at all. And then on the day I wore it I was just so worn out from the rest of the weekend and so tired and like it didn't I didn't feel comfortable in it. I felt really like I wasn't really happy with my body and like how I looked in it and all this sort of stuff. And then we had a guy ask to take some photographs with us and uh, this person has a bare midriff and he put his hand on my waist and it was really gross and I was like feeling really uncomfortable anyway and then this guy touched me inappropriately and I was like, oh, and it was it was a bad time. So yeah, I'm never going to do that again either. Yeah. Um, one of the things I've liked to talk to people on this podcast about is like a lot of people look at cosplayers such as yourself and others and they look like oh there's perfection here and these people don't ever have problems and nothing ever fails and that's one of the reasons why i asked the question i did just now uh what would you just say to people who think like cosplayers such as yourself basically never have mistakes and never have problems oh god the amount of mistakes i've made in the 10 years of cosplaying like that's how i learn I learn by screwing up. Like, the reason I'm making Hux now is because I already cosplay him, but and I made the uniform the first time around, but I made so many mistakes when I made it that I just wasn't happy with it. It was really fun to wear, and I enjoyed cosplaying him, but I was like, from the first day I wore it, I was like, I'm remaking this because it's not right, and I haven't done it right. And other people don't see that because I suppose I'm at a level now where my mistakes are only I see. But at the same time, I learned to become a better cosplayer purely through making those mistakes over and over again. And, you know, I'd sew something wrong or I'd, I wouldn't put a lining in right or I'd use the wrong fabric. And, you know, you push through and you make the costume and you finish it, but you know that at the end of the day you weren't happy with it. And it's important to acknowledge that. It's important to go, I did make a mistake here. How do I learn from that? And also, I think they don't, a lot of people only see the finished thing and they don't realize that you were crying at two in the morning trying to get it done. You know, my Flynn Rider costume, I was working on until well past midnight the day before I wore it because I screwed up making the pattern and it had been the wrong size and I'd had to resize the whole thing. Um, thankfully, on like my, my pra- practice version, but it had ended up costing me an extra two or three days and so I was really behind. And but yeah, so people don't see that. They just see that I turned up in a finished costume on the day I got there in time, but they don't know that I was literally going sobbing watching Stranger Things like why am I still fine you know yeah oh no it's okay is there one thing that you think above anything else you think you could improve on um probably my well yeah my armor work and like props work, I can't, I can't do it at all. Like it's something that I just, I really struggle with. Whereas like, I struggled with weight for a long time, but I've, uh, like recently I've started, I've like had a breakthrough and I'm starting to work out how to do wigs properly, especially with lace front ones. Still don't think I could do like crazy anime spikes, but I'll get there. Um, but armor, I've never managed to work out how to like break through that thing of like, how do I do this? Because I do a lot of tailoring and a lot of dressmaking, and so for me, I understand how all of, how fabric works and how it goes together. But at the moment, I'm asked to use like foam or hard materials. I'm like, I don't understand how this works. How do I fit pieces together? How do I cut it out to make that shape? Ah! And also, like, it's quite expensive to learn. Like, if because I learn through making mistakes, 
something like making armour is an expensive process. And so if it goes wrong, it, it can go wrong quite badly. Whereas with fabric, to a certain extent, you can take it apart and put it back together again without doing too much damage. Unless it's like silk or something, but... Yeah. Um, uh, but no. yeah, so I'd say armour is probably my, my weakest thing <laughs> by a long way. I've actually had a lot of people say that. Like, really good cosplayers, a lot of them have said armour is probably the thing they have to work the most on. Yeah, I think once you've got it, you've got it. And I know that some of my friends find armour a lot easier than they find fabric. And I think that's to do with how people think more than tails. Like if you... Still there? I think I lost you. Oh, oh my god. I lose you for a second. Yeah, I think... I think I'm okay. Okay. Okay, yeah. It's, I moved this table. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, your, I think your volume's a little low. You might have to get closer to the mic or something. <laughs> yeah. How's that? Is that better? Yeah, that's better. Okay, there we go. Um, yeah, I think if you're somebody who can understand like spatial things and you can visualize things in 3D, then armor is going to be so much easier than fabric because fabric you have to understand how it moves, how it falls, the drape, you know, it's not just bend it and put it in place, it's more like you have to be able to see a piece of fabric and understand that cutting it a certain way is going to make it react differently, whereas foam will always be foam. Fabric, if you cut it across the bias, which is sort of diagonally normally, that's a generalisation, but yeah, so if you cut it in a certain way, it will, it will hang completely differently to if you cut it a different way. So it's like, that's something that getting your head around is like, whoa! But once you do, you can understand completely how to manipulate fabric. But, like, I don't have any spatial awareness at all. Like, I don't walk into door frames. Like, we're at that level of no spatial awareness. And so, for me, looking at armour, I'm like, I have no idea. This doesn't make any sense to me. But. Uh, if you wanted to look at yourself and say, this is the thing I think I do good. And I know a lot of artists don't want to even do that a lot of times. But what would be the thing you look at and say, like, I actually do that pretty good. Um, I think my, the thing I do best is tailoring, and that's not to say that I don't have a lot to learn, because I would, I definitely do, like I have friends who are professional tailors, and I look at what they're doing, and I'm going, holy crap, amazing. But, from, like, from where I am now, I would definitely say that my tailoring and my understanding of how to fit a garment is definitely my best thing. Like, I don't particularly do high levels of detail or embroidery or beadwork. Which I would, I'm, I'm learning to do, but it's not really my thing, because I don't, it, I just don't enjoy looking at that, it's just not something for me that I take pleasure in, whereas a really beautifully fitted waistcoat, or a nice pair of trousers, or just, you know, a beautiful touch jacket, I'm like, that's it, that's perfection, that's what I want to make. So, for me, I would say tailoring is my best thing, because I like it most, and the thing I'm, you know, striving to make into being perfect, rather than wanting to do really like crazy detailed costumes I'm more like I want to make this thing that's quite simple to make absolutely perfect so. uh, you talked at the beginning about when your first experiences cosplaying at a convention do you remember the first time somebody came up to you and asked you for a photo or something yeah I do it was my first convention actually uh, I had quite a lot of like I had most of the time people didn't ask for any photos but I had one guy come up and ask for a photo and then like I was like surrounded by loads of people and it was really kind of overwhelming. Um, I remember kind of 15 year old me being like, I don't really, like being really shy. And like, I was kind of hugging, uh, I'd bought a plushie from Kingdom Hearts. And I was like hugging that to my chest. Like, I really don't 
know how to react to this because it was the first time in my life anyone had just come up to me and asked me anything like that. Like, you know, I was quite... Before I started cosplaying, I was quite shy as a, as a teenager. And um, so it was this sort of overwhelming moment of like, oh, people have liked what I've done. Oh, okay, that's cool, that's great. Um, and then I got a real buzz for it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, this is cool. And it really helped me build my confidence as well. Like, it was something where I, you know, I learned how to inhabit these characters and learn how to pose as them and all that sort of stuff. And then once you kind of learn how to pose, you kind of learn how to act as them. And I'm not saying, like, acting like an actor, but, like, you kind of start to key into those bits of the personality that are similar to your personality, and you gain this, this level of confidence through it that I think uh, you don't get in many other ways. I think, like, cosplay is something where I would say, and, like, having someone come up to you and go, you're a character that I love, and I want to take your photos, is, like, the best feeling. You're like, wow, you like what I did, this is so great, thank you. And because it's a complete stranger, it's not like you're on a movie set or you're doing a photo shoot or <clears throat> you know anything like that it's like you suddenly feel like you're famous because you've made something that somebody else likes and that's so cool like you can be anyone you don't need you don't have to have thousands of likes on facebook you don't have to be a super famous cosplayer you don't even have to be like um how to describe it like um you know a super popular character somebody will come up to you and be like oh wow i love what you did and you're like oh, yay you appreciate me and this character and so we have something in common and that's really cool. Like, especially when you're cosplaying like uh, a slightly unknown character and someone comes up to you and like, friends for life because you like this character too, wow! You know, and it's great, it's really fun. So yeah. I would say that. Yeah. I know, like, I talked to another cosplayer recently and I was like, I looked at their, uh, their uh, Instagram and I was like, I don't know any of the characters you're cosplaying but they're all awesome and cool. <laughs> I think that's really cool though when you see someone you're like i don't know what you're cosplaying but this co this costume and your your the way you've made it is brilliant and i love it that's one of my favorite things is because you suddenly eh, my headphones falling off my head um you suddenly go i you realize you appreciate the craft over the character and for me that's that's brilliant like if you're going i don't know what this is but it's beautiful and i find that if someone comes up to me and says that to me even more like oh, thank you, than anything else, because my craftspersonship has, is at such a high level, or at least is appreciated on a level, that them knowing the character isn't important. Like, for me, that's, that's like, a, a complete win. It's like, yeah, I did good, thank you, <laughs> you know. Um, you talk about, and I've seen this, I think, the first time on your Twitter, was, like, you talked about trying to de-gender clothing. How would you describe what that is? Okay, so I think uh, I would describe it as the idea of, uh, there's a quote from Eddie Izzard where someone's like, uh, why do you wear women's clothing? He's like, I don't wear women's clothing, I wear my clothing. I bought this skirt, I'm wearing this skirt, it's mine, it's not, like, and to me that's what I kind of feel like when I talk about degendering clothing, is being like, this item of clothing, be it something like a skirt or a dress or something, has only been gendered as feminine in the last maybe 200, 300 years. Like before then, people, like, if you look at, like, ancient history and stuff, everyone's wearing the same thing. There's a very little differentiation between male and female fashion. I mean, of course, there is some, but it's all, everyone's wearing skirt, dressy type things. Um, and it's only in the last, you know, in sort of modern history that we've had these very different ideas of this is man's clothes, this is woman's clothes. And for me, I find that really strange. 
because I'm like, but everybody wears trousers nowadays, so why is it that one type of trousers is women's trousers, and the same type of trousers, but in a slightly, you know, in a slightly bigger cut is men's trousers, it's, it's very strange, because at the end of the day, it's just clothes, things that you put on your body that you like, how they look, to cover you up, so if a guy, you know, if a guy who identifies as a cisgendered man wants to wear a dress, because he thinks it's pretty, or he thinks it makes him look nice, I don't see why that's an issue, and I don't see why anyone has an issue with that, because it's not a woman's dress, it's his dress, and in the same way that if I want to wear a tux, which is like a different years and look fab, I'm not wearing man's, I'm not wearing men's clothes, I'm wearing my clothes, they're mine, I'm wearing them, I bought them, you know, or in my case, often I made them, so I'm not wearing guys' clothes, I'm wearing my clothes. And I think that's what I mean. When I talk about degendering clothes, I mean basically making it that everybody should be able to wear whatever they like, whatever they want, and it shouldn't be, this is a lady's piece of clothing and this is a man's piece of clothing, because it's silly and it stops people being happy. You know, it stops people doing what they want. And I think if we lived in a society where people were more open and expressive about what they wear, we'd have less issues with people being trans, because I think people would be like, oh, you're trans, that's cool, you're, you know, like, people would understand things more, because there would be no pressure of, oh, that's a man in a dress, it would be like, oh, that's cool, you want to be a woman, that's fine, you know, I think it would, they would remove these barriers of gender with things like clothes, and you remove them in other areas of people's lives, I explained that badly, but, yeah, <laughs> um, it would make people more accepting, I think, is what I, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't, kind of goes back to something uh, a friend of mine actually said once and she said that she thinks transgender issues are actually the last bastion of hateful people because once you eliminate those issues and this came up through the whole United States bathroom issue mm. was that if you eliminate that where people can't automatically look at somebody and say I hate that person because they're female mm. that, that automatically eliminates a lot of economic issues and everything would you uh, agree with that? I think so. I mean, I think it's probably slightly more complicated than that because obviously you have issues with race involved with that as well. But it's very. I think the idea that uh, trans, you know, once if you eliminate transgender issues, you are taking a you're taking what a very big step towards this idea that people are, you know, you're looking at somebody and going, you're different, so I hate you. And if you can go, well, no, and you can get rid of that problem, then people will start to understand other issues. Um, but then I think you could say that about anything. If you could magically get rid of race issues or deal with race issues, then people would probably start yeah. understanding uh, sort of more kind of uh, civil rights issues to do with women and uh, the LGBT community, all that sort of stuff. I think it's it's too much of a question, uh, too much of a complication to say that one thing would make everything better because there's, it's too nuanced, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh most issues like those are very nuanced and mm. people want to put broad strokes to solve them when it comes I think to so. I think people want to be able to go yes we fixed it whereas actually if you think about it we've only had sort of a civil rights movement for the last century or so like you know you can pinpoint when these things start and so considering how long humans have been around on earth uh, especially in, uh, if you're looking at modern history for the last 2000 years for us to have come so far in a hundred years is incredible, you know, because we, you know, there was a lot of issues 
to do with the patriarchy and uh, race and all this sort of thing <coughs> that are not solved. They are not anywhere, you know, they are not anywhere near as solved as they should be. There's still so many problems, but we have come a long way very quickly, and I think we will continue to do so. And I think it's why we're seeing the rise of popular populism, so things like Donald Trump and uh, Brexit and all that sort of stuff, because. Uh, because we've moved so far so quickly, there's a lot of people who, when they were born, uh, so I'm talking about people in their 60s and 70s, maybe a bit younger, but predominantly that age group, who being gay was illegal, being transgender wasn't even a thing. You know, uh, they still remember things like apartheid and all this sort of stuff. And they're suddenly being like, oh my god, the world around me is changing, I don't understand it. And there's all these people who I don't get, who are like, have completely different worldviews to me. And it, rather than going, I need to understand them, they freak out. I'm not saying that's everybody in that age bracket, because of course it isn't. But I think that is a big, a big part of the problem, is that there's quite a few people, across the board, generally, who have suddenly realised that they are not the be-all and end-all of the world, and that there's plenty of other people in the world who have different experiences and different life stories to them, who they don't understand, and rather than trying to understand, they have decided that they want to hate those people. Um, and I think that's where a lot of these issues come from, or I think that's where all of these issues come from, is this, uh, rather than going, I need to understand these other people, they, they just decide to be like, you're not like me, and so you're wrong. You know, it's very close-minded, it's very, it's, uh, it's a very easy option to go, but I'm just going to go and sit in my box with all the other people like me, and not necessarily think that that's a bad thing. Uh, with your, uh, audio series, Reagan and Starburst. Uh, I discovered it because uh, Stacy Tyler, who was in your second series, yeah. recommended it to me. And that's how I first discovered it. And I showed it to a friend of mine. And one of the first things that clicked in her head was she looked at it and she said, the word non-binary is used in these descriptions. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, that doesn't happen that often. Yeah. I mean, I made a big point of being like, we are going to have a non-binary character, and I want to do them justice. Which is why Kess, despite actually Kess is in Series 1, they're mentioned in Series 1, but they're not in it in it. And that was why I was like, I don't want to rush this story and have to deal with all of the things I want to deal with. Because like Series 1, I wanted to have it that I dealt with this idea of the woman being the sidekick and the dance and the stress and all this stuff. And I wanted to deal with that first off, because it's such a big token sci-fi. And then I was like, but I don't want to do that and negate the non-binary story. And I don't want the non-binary story to like overcome that story because I think that there, there are issues that need to be addressed. Um, so I was like, the series two, I was like, the series two storyline is all about a non-binary character and their way and how they identify and their way of exploring the world and interacting with the world while being non-binary, but also acknowledging that that person just because they're non-binary doesn't mean they can't have relationships, doesn't mean they can't be awesome and brilliant and all this sort of stuff, like, you know, it was being like, this is a non-binary character and they're also somebody you desperately want to be friends with and you want to hang out with and that's, and they're just really cool and fun and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So for me it was about doing, having a non-binary character, doing a story about a non-binary character well and explaining what non-binary is and at the same time making sure that that character didn't feel like they were shoehorned in 
or just there to kind of tick boxes. I wanted them to have be there in their own right, which is why Series 1 uh, didn't have them in. And then Series 2 was all about them, because it, for me it was like, that is the most important thing, is to give them the space to develop. And well, I think we did that. Yeah. One of the things I think a lot of people don't understand when they talk about people talk about representation in media in any way, it's just the little things are so important. Like my friend was talking about the usage of the word. She hadn't heard it used that much in fiction, and even in descriptions of what the work was going to be. And I've had other people say they haven't heard the word ace used a lot, and when it's used, it's really important to them. Did you know that when, when you actually wrote, like, the... Yeah, I mean, it was one of the things... I actually did it on purpose because I got so annoyed with people being like, oh, but, like, Steven Universe has non-binary characters. Like, that's representation. I was like, yeah, but they're never called that. And they're always gendered with pronouns. The only character that isn't is Savoni. And, like, they, that could be because Steven and Connie want... Steven's a guy and Connie's a girl, and so it could just be... You know, people don't need to read that as them being non-binary. But all of the gems are referred to as she, you know. So they may be non-binary or they may be asexual, but... They aren't being referred to as that. The word is never used in the same way that in, like, Orange is the New Black, the main character is bisexual, but the word bisexual is never, ever used. It's uh, why in, like, the most recent... And spoilers for anybody who's not up to date with Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but Rosa coming out as bisexual and saying multiple times, I'm bi, I'm bisexual, I like men and women, uh, was so important because she was using the word it was being, you know, explained, it was, you know, being, people were being very open about it and being very honest about what this word meant, and that was so important, because it just doesn't get used, you're right, sorry, it just doesn't get used in media, and that's why when I was like, I'm going to write a non-binary character, I was going, I'm like, I'm going to make it, make it explicit, I'm going to go, from the get-go, from the introduction of this character, they are using they, them pronouns, from the get-go, they then have a whole scene, it's like a three minute scene where they explain non-binary and agenda and how they're different um, and then throughout the series it's referred to, you know, they talk about it, they're like, this character's non-binary and then I have the villains misgender them on purpose I chose that the villains would misgender this character so that the character could be like you're bad for misgendering me I'm non-binary, I'm a they, that's my pronoun I'm not a boy or a girl, all that sort of stuff and I could be really kind of, almost sort of uh, children's storybook, like, these are the bad guys because they're doing a bad thing, you know. But I felt it was needed because, like you said, people don't use these words very often. Um, I hope in Series 3 we're going to look at probably some more issues like this. Uh, we're going to look at the fact that we're going to have an asexual character. Uh, so we will talk about people being ace. And you know, we actually have a suit, we're going to expand the idea of them being agender, despite the fact that they are a robot, they are sentient, and they are a life form in their own right, and so I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to explore the idea of agender through them, um, because they're still a person, they're just a slightly different type of person. Um, and also I play suits, so for me it's quite fun to do that, um, despite the fact I identify as non-binary, it's quite nice to be able to, to explore any gender stuff through the characters. So that's cool. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one thing about science fiction, actually. I think you can get away with a lot more because you can be like, sci-fi, we've got laser guns and, you know, we fly around in a spaceship called Space Bucket and, you know, there's a evil man wearing space mink. 
Yeah. <laughs> the evil empire here is a bank, banking corporation, so anything could happen. Come on. So, yeah. Uh, um, I'm such a huge fan of uh, Ray and Star Wars. Like, I, the commercials, by the way, like, oh, I love those it. things. Yeah. Like, I've, um, I've cackled laughing at work listening. <laughs> uh, the, the commercials are my favorite thing. We do those, because all the scripts I write beforehand, obviously. Um, and then when we get together to do the read-throughs, part of what we do over dinner is we write out the ideas for the ads, and then uh, me and a couple of others will go away and we'll write those over the course of the weekend while we're recording, and then we record them all at the end. And so it's wonderful because the ads end up being this brilliantly organic kind of thing where all the cast and crew get involved in putting them together, and so you get these really quirky little things. Not to say that, you know, the rest of the script that I write on my own isn't great, because it is, but... It's nice to have the other, the others be able to put their voices in and put their mark on stuff uh, and create all these really fun little things. But also, if I wrote them all, they'd all have, they'd all have the same jokes in them. They'd all have the same sense of humour that I have, whereas the others have different senses of humour. And so you get things like the the pub at the end of the universe and all this sort of stuff, which is, is a you know uh, hitchhiker's reference. But um, you also get things like uh, the I think it's. Uh, the opera one, which I quite like, and then there's uh, like a used car lot and all this sort of stuff. You get these things where people are like, but I want to have this. And you're like, yeah, that's fun, and I like how you put it together. So it's nice. It's, I enjoy, I really enjoy those bits because it's lovely to work with other people and see their, their creativity there. With the, the different ways you wrote your scripts with like the, the, the what we probably call like the straight narrative in a way, and then you got the commercials, and then you got the fourth wall breaking narrative in a way like with that is that very difficult or do you write those things separately i write it all together it's oh. all written uh each script is written completely as it goes because for me putting the, the narration part the way we do break the fourth wall is as much telling the story and the narrative as the other bits because not all the time but often i'll have bits of the story being told in those sections away from the main narrative just so we can get past something quicker and being like okay, this will be really boring if I put it in, like, I have to write a scene about it, so let's just skip over it with the narration. Um, <clears throat> plus, it means that I can have jokes referring back and all this stuff, so I really enjoy that. The only bit that's written separately, like I said, is the ads, and then, actually, we don't even decide where those ads go until we're doing, we're in post-production, and we put them in, like, literally, they'll be the last thing to go in, it'll be completely edited, and then we'll put the ads in last, because there might be things where I'm like, oh, this thing is foreshadowing, we need to put it in there, or... Uh, this thing hasn't been mentioned yet in the series, so we can't put it in yet, and just little things like that, so it's, it's fun. Uh, what do you think is the hardest thing about audio storytelling? Oh, the hardest thing. Trying to do visual gags. <laughs> <laughs> That's not so But, like, sometimes you're like, you want to have a big visual of something, and, or, like, you're like, oh, you're having a fight, you're having a big fight with somebody, like, if you're doing that on screen, clearly a big load of robots are flying towards your heroes and your heroes are fighting them. Whereas if you're doing that in audio, yes, you've got sound effects, but you have to have people being like, look, look over there in the sky, a load of robots are flying towards us, which is really, and it does sound quite clunky. And so trying to work out how to write that without it sounding clunky is really tricky. Um, often what I do, I get around it by having, maybe having the characters split up and so they're on the radio to each other, and so they're describing what they're seeing, or um, 
just something like that, or like, uh, Kess is quite helpful for Kess, Kess is one of these characters who will be like, oh my god, look, this thing is so amazing, look at this thing, look, it's got this, it's a big computer, or something like that, you know, they get really excited about things, and so they, they explain stuff for you, um, but yeah, the, the problem is when you want to put somebody in a setting, and you don't want people to be like, oh, we're in a jungle, look over there, some jungly trees, you know, you don't want to do that, so it's, uh, <laughs> obviously there is a certain amount you can do sound effects, but sometimes you do need to have these slightly, I don't think funky, but slightly sort of over-explaining pieces of dialogue uh, to get the visuals across, but other than that, but the, that's, a, that's a trick you learn as you go along. So. Well, I think your, your writing with suit is like one of the things I think stands out, because that could easily have been just a very basic, bland character, but you make not only people care about the character, but also the fact that you do pull off some visual jokes with the character in different times. I love Suit. Suit's great. Um, Suit has evolved so much over the like Suit series one, especially since like we did. I did. I literally did a pilot episode because I wrote that for my university dissertation. That was my final piece. Uh, was Ray Gonzalez episode one, and the change in all the characters, but especially Suit, since then has been a big thing because. Uh, for me, Suit is very much one of those characters who, and I don't want to give too much away for Series 3 because fans and stuff, um, but Suit comes into their own in Series 3, and I, Suit is very much the main character of Series 3. Um, but that was something I wanted to do. I wanted to build them up and change them and be able to play with this. We, a character who I didn't want to be like Marvin from Hitchhikers, and I didn't want them to just be like Hal like, or any other sort of AI. I wanted them to be their own character in their own right. But when you have a character who's quite literally attached to another person, um, that allows them some very funny and very entertaining uh, dialogue. And it means you have these two people who, at the end of the day, they love each other, but they don't necessarily like each other. <laughs> like, they're like family. Um, and you end up getting quite a fun character out of that. I, I, I realise that suits has become softer with Ray, but harsher with Starburst um, over Series 2, which was really interesting in that Sue and Ray have this very interesting relationship of being kind of more like, almost more parental to Starburst, especially with Kess coming into the mix. Um, they take a step back from Star, and then their relationship is becoming closer, or at least that's how, I, that's how I'm writing it, whether that comes across, I don't know. But it, it's quite interesting. So, uh, yeah. the end, the uh, little talk about Raygun and Starburst, uh, what information do you have on the future of it? Like, will it be Kickstarter, the next series, or what? Uh, so we're going to be releasing some more shorts. Uh, we did a few recently, which went down quite well, so we're going to do some more. Um, probably over the next few months, I'm gonna start, uh, we're going to start writing and recording those, which will be really fun. They're just going to be single character shorts, um, because we don't have, we can all of us have recording equipment that we can use or have access to stuff that we can use to do that. Um, or like uh, Ian, who's the producer and also plays Castlam, um, has a recording set up at home and uh, Georgia does as well, so who's Starburst. So we can go to some of somebody's house and do it there. Um, series 3 probably won't be happening until Christmas this year. I know it's a whole year away. Um, because Eleni, who plays Kess, is moving back to Australia for a bit to study at university, and so we have to wait for her to come back to the UK. Um, 
but that's fine because actually it's quite nice to have a break because um, series one and series two came was for me anyway production wise were very quick well, it was a it was a very quick process of uh, I wrote series one we recorded series one we did all the posts on series one and put it together and released it and then we basically went straight into me working on series two scripts and so it's quite nice to have a break but obviously I do miss them so it's quite nice uh, now to be able to do these little shorts um, and then what we're going to probably do with the shorts is we're going to start uh, we're going to make like a like a Patreon page for Ray Gonzalez and we'll be releasing the shorts on there and releasing the series three scripts because cool. um, I have my own Patreon anyway but this one will be predominantly just for Ray Gonzalez so basically we'll start crowdfunding before we do uh, Indiegogo for series three uh, but we will be doing a big crowdfunding event for Series 3 as well. Oh, cool. Um, your art is like journalism, fiction, direction, costume design, voiceover work, I don't know, Master of the Onesie? <laughs> Did I miss anything there? <laughs> my onesie, yeah. <laughs> is there anything you'd like to do that's not related to anything you've done so far in the arts? Um, I'd like to. I'd really like to write a novel. That's one thing I'd like to do. I don't have the patience for it, unfortunately, because it's weirdly I've written the amount of Reagan and the I've written, the amount of journalism pieces I write. I've written more. I've written enough words to have several novels, <laughs> but uh, I struggle to. I struggle to sit down and write one big story. Whereas Reagan and the is episodical, uh, like a novel. It, it, you have to write chapters and it, they have to link together and make sense and you can't make it up as you go along which I totally don't make make up some parts of Reagan and as they go along but I do because uh, <laughs> it's boring otherwise you know everything's going to happen um, but yeah I think that's probably the one thing I'd really like to find the ability within myself to sit down and write a novel uh, and I think, that w I think it's one of these things that actually will come to me but right now I'm not in the right place to do it the other thing I'd really like to do is I'd really like to write and direct a film. That's something I would love to do, is to write and direct film and TV, which I haven't done. It's very different doing that, doing radio. Like, it's a different way of writing, it's a different way of directing. So I would love to, to uh, work in a more visual medium. Do you think it's easy for you to, like, when you're working as, like, a writer, if you could look at costumes and buy somebody else and not be picky about their costumes, is it easy for you to separate when you work with other people in something that you do very well also? Yeah, because I know that they're a professional to a certain extent. I think because if I go into a situation as a prof like as a professional writer or a director and someone was being picky with me because they wrote fan fiction, I'd be like, what are you doing? <laughs> so it, as a hobby costume maker and an amateur, going in and being like, oh, I don't think you did that right to somebody who it's their job, is, it's kind of disrespectful. Even if maybe in my head I'm thinking, oh, I wouldn't do it like that, or, oh, I'd, I'd maybe design this slightly differently, um, I would never say it out loud, and I think I'd probably almost just be like, yeah, maybe I think that, but it's their job, they know what they're doing. Um, it's one of these things in the arts that a lot of people have a lot of different talents and a lot of different skills, and people work across the board. So, you know, I do, do quite some of my journalism stuff I do is, reviews and critiquing and I often find that I can't critique the art in a comic or I can't critique like uh, costumes in a film as much because 
um, I'm like, well, this person did, is doing their job, maybe I don't have the expertise. Uh, that being said, sometimes I think it does help, because I'm, I come from a theatre background, rather than just being like, oh, I make costumes, I, you know, I have worked from theatre, and I have worked with professionals, and have been included in the idea of being a professional. I do have, not like major costume designing credits, like I haven't worked on films or anything, but I have worked in theatres designing and making costumes. So, um, to a certain extent, I do think that, uh, for example, most recently I did a critique on the changes, the costumes from Wonder Woman to the Justice League to the Amazons, uh, and for me I was like, well, I do have some expertise on this, I can do a bit more research, and so I can put together an interesting critique on this that maybe people will take away and learn something from, but also it's not me being like, oh my god, this is so wrong and you should have changed it all, it's me being like, well, here is me talking about something that I've researched and I have some knowledge on, and maybe I'm not right, but also it's my, this is my opinion on the matter from an, invo an informed um, uh, viewpoint, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, um, I remember when I wrote for a website, they hired me to work for the website, and reason why I didn't continue writing, the editor who liked me and liked my work said, like, you like everything. And I'm like, yeah. well, I look at it and say, people put a lot of effort into that movie or that TV show or that book, and I would never give anybody, like, a really low score. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm like that. I'm terrible with reviewing things. I always feel like I'm being really nasty, and then they're like, oh, you were really nice. And I'm like, was I? I thought I was being mean. And they're like, no, you were just fair. And I'm like, oh, okay then. Like, I struggle. Um, because I know what it's like to have my own work reviewed. Not that we've actually had any bad reviews of Reagan and stuff, but we've had a couple of weird ones uh, where people have just misunderstood the premise. But um, nothing predictably bad. But um, I find it really difficult to take somebody's work that they've kickstarted or they put a lot, you know, put so much effort into it and all this sort of stuff and be really nasty about it. I, I feel le less bad when it comes to big Hollywood blockbusters because at that point I'm like somebody here should have known better yeah but especially but when it comes to like not even necessarily just indie things but more kind of lower level work you're like everybody here loves what they're doing god damn it and maybe it didn't work but <laughs> ah like there's a comic that I've been asked to review that it's been kickstarted but it hasn't been released yet and I can't I don't want to give the title away or anything like that because I don't think it's fair before I do the review but I can tell that this thing is really well-intentioned, and this person has clearly put a lot of love into it, but it's not good. In fact, there, there's quite a lot of it that actually, as a non-binary person, were genuinely offensive. And I'm like, this isn't through you being mean-spirited or anything, it's through you being naive and ignorant of what you're talking about, because you're a cisgendered person and you didn't realise that what you were doing wasn't good representation, it was kind of offensive fetishization of this. And it's really strange when you're there going, oh, I could tell that you wanted to make something really good and you wanted to be an ally, but, oh, this is bad. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, oh, you did not do this right. Yeah, and so you're like, I don't want to be mean to you because I don't think you're a horrible person by any stretch of the imagination. I think you were trying really hard, but, oh, no, it did not work. <laughs> you know, so... Well, I had a, a, a journalism professor when I was in college tell me that critic is the wrong word because he says it should be education and not criticism because, yeah. like, it does nothing to just tear something down. 
that writer will never learn from it. Exactly. I know as a writer myself, I if you look at some of my very first work when I was in high school and college, I fell into the same stupid tropes when it came to women's characters over and over again. I thought I was doing right. You know, the whole, like, having women go through hell to be a hero mm. and stuff yeah. like that. But I didn't learn until somebody was like, that's not right. Yeah. That's not how that's, you do it. So, like, for me, I feel like a lot of the time when I critique stuff or when I'm reviewing things, I'm trying to be like, this thing for me doesn't sit right, and here's why, and maybe maybe I'm the wrong audience, or maybe uh, next time they could think about doing this. Uh, considering that this comic I'm about to review, I think I am entirely the audience they're trying to aim at, mm-hmm. and I'm there going, oh no, this makes me feel very uncomfortable. Um, I'm going to be like, okay, let's just let's just talk about why this is wrong. Not that it is wrong, it is, but let's just talk about why and maybe how next time this could be avoided and how you could improve on it. And also, or your storytelling technique is not good. Um, I feel bad because this it's one of these things where it's like, it's really, visually it's very beautiful, but the storytelling is muddled and confusing and oh my goodness. Anyway, I'm going to write a review about this. <laughs> the future, no well, fine. intent is like when people say like, I didn't intend for this to be that way. Well, yeah, you didn't intend for it. We always, creators, don't intend for something to be offensive or not work, but it doesn't work yeah. a lot of times. Your intent exactly. was for this not to be that way, but it turned out that way. Exactly, and I'm like, I genuinely think a lot of the time, uh, I think some, I think there are a lot of writers who, uh, Joss Whedon is a really good example of this, actually, in that their intent is to do good things, but they don't always execute them in a way that comes across. And it's like, that's fine, you just need to learn from your mistakes. It's not like somebody who isn't trying at all. It's somebody you're like, oh, you tried and you fell at the last hurdle. That's fine. We can deal with that. You know, I think that's... I think it's better to be kinder to people who are trying rather than trying to be like, oh, you failed, you know, ah, kind of thing. Whereas I think a lot of people, because someone was trying, they get more angry when they don't when that doesn't succeed or it doesn't succeed yeah. in the way they want because they were like oh but you were going to make something so great and then you're like yeah they tried and they nearly did make something really great so let's not be angry let's be kind and try and explain to them why this didn't work and how maybe they can fix it in the future i'm doing very large hand gestures that you can't see it's quite funny um <laughs> and you can write Speaking from experience, a very long book and get to the end and it not be very good and you put a lot of effort into it and a lot of work into it and it just didn't work at all. That's the way the arts are a lot of times. It is. You know, that is the case. I mean, I think I'm really lucky in that um, with Reagan and Starburst, especially I had a big team of people around me who... I can go to and be like, what do you think of this? Do you think I did this right? Maybe I should change this. And like, who are really willing to talk about, especially like the gender and LGBT issues. And when it comes on series three, where we're going to be talking about mental health issues, uh, I have a, a big team of people who I'm going to go to and be like, uh, am I, I don't want to fuck this up. Am I doing this right? Am I talking about this in a sincere and um, open and honest way where I'm not, you know, I'm not making it a scary thing. I'm not making it a bad thing. Uh, I'm talking about this in a in a, a way that is going to help. You know, I don't want to talk. I don't want to come because you know I don't have. I'm not somebody who I would I wouldn't say that I have particularly bad mental health issues. And obviously, everybody gets some anxiety from that and all sorts of stuff. But I'm not 
depressed, I don't have breakdowns, and, you know, I don't have any major issues. And so I don't want to be that person who writes about something, trying to be, you know, trying to be well-intentioned and be good and screw up. So for me, it's like, I'm going to go and talk to people. And maybe I will screw up. Maybe this will be the, maybe series three will be where I, I don't quite make, you know, I don't quite manage it because it's not something I can talk about. We'll see, you know, but I think that there is a, a huge amount to be said for talking to the people you're trying to represent and hearing their voices and letting their voices be part of your storytelling um, rather than being like, yeah, I've done the research and I know about this. It's like, no, go to people, listen to their stories, listen to their experiences and let them tell you if you're doing it wrong because then if you're doing it wrong, don't go away and be like, whoa, 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 whoa. you've got to go, okay, how do I change this? How do I fix it to write this better? Um, and I think that's a problem that a lot of people have, is that they think they understand the issues without necessarily realising they didn't talk to anyone who have the issues. Um, yeah, that's yeah. automatically like the thing I think we have a problem with, is like whenever somebody says, well, you didn't do this right or like that, we all get angry, especially, I think, speaking for myself and the men I've been around all my life, men have that problem, it's like, you did this wrong, Urgh! it's their first yeah. response, instead of saying, okay, what did I do wrong? And we yeah, do it exactly. with arts and stuff too, artists automatically, we see it on Twitter almost every day, somebody criticizes an artist for something, and next thing you know, you get shouting all day long. Like, I totally understand that you want to defend yourself, because I know that I've been in that position where I'm like, oh, you've misinterpreted what I've said, or, you know, you didn't understand it, and you want to defend it. But sometimes you have to, you have to take the step back, and it's so hard. It's genuinely so hard. And like, I can I know why people don't, because it's it's such a difficult thing to do. But I think as creatives, we need to be able to go and go. All right, I fucked up. How do I fix this? How do tell me tell me how I fix this? Um, actually, I was really impressed by Emma Watson really uh, recently, who uh, she was criticised quite heavily last year for being a white feminist in inverted commas, and she was like, I don't understand what it means. And so she went away and she um, did her research and all this sort of stuff. And she's come back recently and gone, I was, you were right. What I was doing was not, think. I wasn't thinking about women of colour enough. I wasn't thinking about people, you know, uh, I wasn't including them in my feminism. Not on purpose, I just didn't think because I, you know, I'm a white woman and I'm really sorry for that. But I've gone away and I've learned. And, like, she had to do this whole thing about talking about it and, um, you know, being like, I think I'm going to take a step back and let these other women take the forefront, um, or at least give them a platform to talk on. And it was really, imp I was really impressed by her because she didn't get really angry at people. She didn't go, oh my God, why are you calling me this? Oh, being mean to me. She went, someone's calling me out. How do I deal with this? I need to educate myself. And that was so impressive. That's so, I like, she's one of the few women I've seen actually, or at least one of the few sort of prominent women who's been accused of this white feminism to actually go, oh my god, I'm doing something wrong, I need to fix this. Like it, it was really, you know, and I think a lot more people need to take the attitude of being like, you might get angry, you might want to, like, throw a tantrum or anything like this, or, you know, just defend yourself, but you need to be like, if someone's criticising me, why are they doing it? What do I need to do? You know. So. Um, your, what's your current project you're working on right now? I know you recently announced, but I don't know if it was totally public to everybody. Uh, no, it's not yet. Um, but, the problem is, I want to announce it, but I haven't been given the logos yet. Okay. <laughs> so That's I, cool. I, I, 
the logos and the website to be up and running so that I can announce everything. And they're not there yet, and so I can't. Um, but I can, I can. I suppose I can talk about it. it. I'm setting up what is effectively a twice yearly uh, sort of coffee table type magazine. It's like a big, thick, proper magazine uh, about cosplaying in the UK, but coming at it from the point of view of presenting cosplay as an art form created by a diverse group of people. Um, so rather than being like hey look, here's some more people like Jessica Negri, who, while I don't, you know, great she's doing what she's doing, that's lovely, but also she is a uh, conventionally attractive white woman who, uh, to a greater or lesser extent, is doing a, you know, she's doing the sexy cosplay thing, and I'm like, well, that's not all that diverse, guys, is it? It's kind of what we expect cosplay to look like. So we're promoting uh, cosplayers of colour, we're promoting disabled cosplayers, uh, plus size cosplayers, cosplayers over 40, which I realise is a big group that gets ignored. Like, there's a lot, like, I have a lot of uh, friends who kind of fall into that category, who are like, yeah, once you kind of, even over 30, people stop giving a shit because you're not young and pretty anymore. And I'm like, that's, that's awful, you know. Um, <laughs> So that and uh, LGBT cosplayers, uh, so like trans cosplayers, all this stuff. All these people, and I want people to pick this magazine up and look at it and go, these people are like me, and they're creating amazing things. I can do that. Not so rather than being like, everyone has to look like a beautiful, very stereotypical one idea of beauty kind of thing. So this one very western centric idea of beauty or in fact if you look at it from the other point of view of this slightly weird fetishized idea of japanese girls um even creepier um which quite often gets portrayed as the mainstream of cosplay which is weird really weird like considering that within cosplay it's such a small part of it um I want people to be able to, people who might not necessarily cosplay or might be worried about cosplaying or they, they love it but they don't feel particularly like they're good at it because they are maybe, a, you know, they're not conventionally, in inverted commas, attractive or whatever, they're not, you know, they don't look like, uh, I, I genuinely can't think of any other famous cosplayer right now, which is terrible. <laughs> um, you know what I mean, they don't look like these, the, what people associate with well, being the big famous cosplayers, but it's more like the community is so vast and different and full of so many brilliantly talented people and it is a beautiful art form where people are creating so many different things in so many different ways that I think people need to we need to represent that we need to be showing these cosplayers and showing off that they everybody is different Well that um, came up in the first episode of this uh, the show uh, when it was discussed about how most internet sites when they talk about cosplay or they do you know a scroll of like the best cosplays from so and so convention it's not very diverse the, the ones they show yeah I think that I think that's true is that uh, the biggest I think the biggest group that gets kind of underrepresented is cosplayers of color uh, which is weird considering there are so many Japanese cosplayers but if you're looking purely at western cosplay 
um, the focus is on white cosplayers and black cosplayers and uh, sort of Asian, Indian, you know, and, uh, <laughs> people who are not white kind of get overlooked, despite the fact that they're a huge part of the community. Uh, and so that was one of the things we definitely wanted to uh, make sure we were representing was this massively diverse group of people who were from all over the world. Uh, they all, you know, <clears throat> and I don't mean like they've come from all over the world to UK to cosplay. I mean like people who, uh, you know, people whose families are of Asian descent or African descent or all this sort of stuff. You know what I mean? Like all these different groups of people in, uh, who are all doing the things that they love and they're all incredibly talented. So that was a big thing. The other thing I wanted to do was actually show, um, so like, uh, sort of Japanese, Chinese, um, Filipino, Viet Vietnamese cosplayers who are UK based or, you know, they're UK Asian or anything like that as non-stereotypes. So there's this girl, Alice, who brilliant cosplay, absolutely loves her stuff. And she's always, she always gets so annoyed because everyone's like, oh, you're Asian, you should cosplay the Asian character. And she's like, well, I want to be Peggy Carter. And so we vote for, like, I want to be Elizabeth from Bioshock. And so we photographed her as Captain America, looking really strong and like awesome and all this sort of stuff. Not like, oh, I'm a little Asian girl, but like, no, I'm super powerful and all this sort of thing. Because like, you don't want to stereotype, you don't, just because a cosplayer is of a certain race, they shouldn't be stereotyped into being a certain character. There's no reason for that. In the same way that just because a character, just because a cosplayer is uh, maybe plus sized or they're short or they're tall or anything like that, they shouldn't have to just cosplay as characters who look like them. That was something we really want to push. Well, yeah, I had a friend who went to a convention, and she went dressed as one of the doctors from Doctor Who. I think it was like the eighth Doctor, Frank mistaken, but she was told, like, why didn't you cosplay as Martha? And she's like, why well, did I have to do that? And then the person also was like, well, there's plenty of cosplays for you. You could be Black Panther. You could be Misty Knight. You could be... And she was like, oh, so I have to be only the black cosplay characters. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we've recently photographed uh, this guy Elijah as Ghost Rider. And yeah, okay, he's wearing like a big skull mask and all this sort of stuff. But he was like, I don't want to just cosplay black characters. I want to cosplay Ghost Rider. He's one of my favorites. So, you know, and the version he did is... Uh, uh, is the white, I don't know that much about Ghost Rider. I know the most recent version of Ghost Rider is Latino, like he was the version before, white guy. And he's like, just because I'm wearing a, you know, I'm like, he was just there, like, he's one of my favorite characters, doesn't matter that I'm black, I'm gonna cosplay him, which I thought was really cool. Um, but then I talked to a, like one of the other cosplayers we talked to, who's like, I like cosplaying as black characters because I like, you know, being able to show that people like me are represented in media. That I don't have to necessarily be. Uh, I don't have to cosplay as like a white character because there are no black characters. I want to find those characters and I want to show them and I want to be proud of them. And like, I love these different viewpoints that we're getting from different people um, as to why they're cosplaying these characters. I think it's really fascinating, um, and it's really good to to talk about that and to make these conversations and have it from you know because we're doing little interviews with everyone, so all of this stuff is their direct quote. I've quoted them badly, probably, in here, because I don't have them in front of me, but in the magazine, they'll be the direct quotes from these people and talk to them, so it will be their voices being being shown, which I, I think is, is the best way to do it, rather than us trying to write about it 
from we aren't it's it's not our issue it's, it is our issue obviously but it's not like we don't we want to give them the platform rather than taking the mic from them if that makes sense oh yeah it's it's like people who don't <laughs> understand when they say like oh i'm for this issue and they talk about it for an hour and it's like okay say you support them but why don't you help somebody else who actually knows about the issue yeah that's exactly what we want to be doing um so it's that's kind of what we're trying to to do is to create uh, a safe space for not necessarily that but like a space where people can you can show that cosplay is sort of really diverse and have people talk about these issues in their own words and have like think pieces on cosplay so like we have we're going to have a different uh, writer every issue writing about uh, uh, something in cosplay that they think needs to be talked about and needs to be addressed and all this sort of stuff but we're also going to be having much more light-hearted things like uh, how do you store your cosplay and your cosplay supplies in your house because for me that was part of this idea of showing how diverse the community was was showing the human side of it and that most cosplayers have all their fabric shoved under their bed or in the top of their wardrobe or you know all their costumes are vacuum packed because they don't have a big storage space or a big workshop and they only have a table where they can get their sewing machine out like once a month you know so to show that not everybody is working and like one has a shed or a garage or a workshop or anything like that most people are doing it in their bedrooms on the floor <laughs> so that was a big part thing for me was like showing the human side i think that's it i think what i really wanted to show was cosplayers as people and not just as something to ogle and yeah uh, so usually the last question I ask people about is your work area, like you spoke of before. What's your work area like in cosplay? In cosplay, uh, I have a desk in a little alcove of um, the back room of my house where I have like a cupboard and a couple of other storage boxes under my bed upstairs, which is full of fabric. And I have my mannequins there. It's actually quite a nice little work area. Uh, I have like my mannequins and I have a little fold-out desk that I can work on. I also write there. Um, and I have all my fabric and all my supplies in my in my little craft cupboard next to me. So it's not little, it's quite big. I took it over from being the tool shed cupboard um, <laughs> when I moved home. This is now my cupboard. Um, and I have like my wig stand there and I have all my all, I have all my drawers full of all my supplies. It's really nice actually. I, I, one of the big things I when I moved back in with my mum when I went freelance because freelancing is not a secure source of income uh, not to start with anyway was that I really wanted to make myself a proper cosplay working area because that's what I'd had in my flat uh, before as I'd made myself I, I had like I actually had a little sewing studio there because we had a spare, a spare cupboard and a spare space so I'd been able to set that up and so I transferred that into the house here so actually I do have quite a nice little space because I am an annoying and persistent person. <laughs> if I don't have this, I'm just going to use the dining room table, aren't I? Aren't I? It's going to be a mess all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of cosplayers, their dining room tables, their cosplay table. <laughs> um, but my mum's really quite house proud, and I think that she was like, fine, it will be contained if you have your own space. I was like, yes, it will. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, once again, thank you for agreeing to do this interview for us. Thank you. I hope I was vaguely interesting and not at all babbly. Oh. <laughs> I think it really would address some issues like uh, that other cosplayers have brought up and 
future episodes and the past episodes. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Um, they can find me on um, so my my handle on everything is Little Prince Costumes, and Little is L I L, not Little. It's L I L Prince Costumes or Littlest, which is L I L I S T Prince, which is my Twitter handle. Um, but if you find me on anything under any of those, pretty much all my other links will be there because my fashion blog is Little Nonbinary Fashion, where I talk about nonbinary fashion. And if you're interested in Raygun and Sarbus, it's RaygunandSarbus.com. No, RaygunandSarbus.co.uk now. Yeah. Um, or you can find us on Twitter at Ray and Star. Uh, and Gun is spelt with two N's because if it's got one N, it's a stripper. Um, <laughs> yeah, we found this out. It was very funny. Um, but yeah, so RaygunandSarbus.co.uk, uh, Ray and Star on Twitter. I'm Littlest Prince on Twitter or Little Prince Costumes on Instagram. And everybody should go do your, uh, at your Patreon, I, I think. That way they can get updates to stuff. Yeah, uh, so yeah, my Patreon is also Little Prince. And again, there are links on my Twitter, my Instagram, and my blog to my, to my Patreon. So if you find any of those, you'll find that. And so if you want early updates on my blog, if you want uh, exclusives to articles I write for magazines, and websites before they are released or published, they'll be on there. Um, if you're interested in the cosplay magazine, which is actually called the Cosplay Journal, uh, all of the updates are going to be on there as well over the next few months, along with behind the scenes shoots and previews of the photo shoots we've been doing with cosplayers, uh, and previews of the interviews we've done with cosplayers. Um, I'll also be posting up loads of behind the scenes stuff from Ray Gunner Starburst. So like we've got outtakes, we've got behind the scenes photos, we've got I'll be putting up uh, scripts, uh, scenes from the scripts, and uh, updates on when series three and the shorts will be coming out. You'll also get early access to any of the shorts and things for Egan and Starburst if you support me on Patreon. Cool, it's a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> you saw oh, like me you get, got eight billion things going on. I also put my cosplay work in progress up on Patreon as well. Um, and I'm probably going to be doing tutorials on that at some point. Cool. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah. Uh, so everybody go and check out all that. And once again, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.
shortlisted, the podcast where the hosts take a top 10 list off the internet, because there are a few, and talk about them for an hour. They set the clock when they remember and talk for an hour if the equipment cooperates. And then they shut up whether they've made it through the list or not. They're not racing against time. They're just shortlisting their big mouths.